Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners. This season, we're pleased to partner with Athabasca University as we take our show production fully online. Athabasca University is celebrating 50 years as Canada's online university. On this show, we talk with midlife learners about their educational journeys, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. My guest today is Jermaine Chan. She had a lifelong dream to become a professor. In her early 30s, she started down the path towards a PhD, but life got in the way. However, the dream never went away. And so in her 50s, she went back to school, and now she is an assistant professor in the business department at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. Jermaine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So Jermaine, were you one of those people who always knew growing up exactly what you wanted to do? Actually, no. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do until much later in life. That was, to be honest, not a conversation we had around the dinner table about going to school and what we wanted to do. Um, So I kind of had to to figure it out by myself. And um, I went back to college, which is CJEP in Quebec, because that's where I'm from, um, as a mature student. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know I wanted to be in school. And at that time, um, I decided to take an accounting course with my boyfriend. And, be, and I, being very competitive, um, I worked hard to do well in that course. And I ended up getting 110% on 100 because I got the 10, 10 bonus points. And, uh, and I said to myself, my, my, my young self, well, this must be what I was meant to do. So I pursued a, uh, after I got out of college, I went to Concordia to pursue an undergraduate degree in accounting. Wow, amazing. Yes. Um, I don't think I've ever gotten 110% on anything. <laughs> well, I have to admit, it's the only course I've ever gotten 110% in. <laughs> wow. And so you went, you went back to uh, Concordia, but, but why academia? What drew you towards this idea of becoming a professor? I, I think by nature, I'm very curious. Um, I love to learn. And um, in my mid-20s, my then boyfriend had a PhD. He still has one, um, but my boyfriend had a PhD, and he really encouraged me to go back to school. I thought after I'd gotten my bachelor's degree um, that I would, then I went on to get a CA, but after that, I thought that would be it. So it was really, um, you know, um, having people around you that encourage you to go to school. That's what happened to me, at least. And he really, really encouraged me. And I credit him to this day, and this was like 35 years ago, I credit him to this day for um, having me, having encouraged me to pursue my education. In fact, when I was um, writing my acknowledgement in my doctoral thesis, I, I, I mentioned his name and again credited him with me being able to come this far in my degree. So it's, I think it's having people around you that support you. And again, as I said, I was very, very curious, and I just wanted to see how far I could go. Oh, that's so nice that you, you mentioned him, like, all those years later. Yes. And he was very, very, very appreciative. We're still good friends now. Um, and I just, I had, to, I had to mention it. There was, there was no way I could not. So I, Wow. 
Wonderful. And so you studied business and uh, you mentioned accounting. And I also did a, a business undergrad. I have to say accounting was not my favorite course, though. Um, <laughs> what was it about um, business and, and accounting? Uh, what interested you in, uh, in those topics? Well, as I said, I did so well in that accounting course that I just continued on. And I tend to do, you know, at that time, I was young and and uh, inexperienced and didn't have a lot of self-confidence. So I, I really liked things that were black and white, two plus two is four, and, you know, debits equal credits. I, I, could, I could cope with that. Um, in my business degree, as you probably know, I had, you had to take other courses like marketing and management. And though I liked those, I really was unsure of myself um, in terms of making decisions, dealing with gray areas. Um, so that's why I... I pursued accounting, um, but as I as I got older and matured more, um, I'm much better able to deal with the gray areas in life and in in academic subjects. So that was just you know what was happening to me at that time in my life. So interesting. Yeah, there is definitely a clarity about um, accounting or math based subjects. Um, I always gravitated a little more to the marketing and the gray areas <laughs> myself. <laughs> well, I have to say, as you get. Uh, certainly in the earlier courses in accounting, it's black and white, but as you progress to graduate level courses and even at the doctoral level, there are a lot of gray areas. So, uh, but you know, every, every business student has to take one or two accounting courses and I have to admit they're very dry. Um, you know, not much room for, you know, for uh, decision making. Sorry, I was going to say, you mentioned that education wasn't a big deal in your family. No. Uh, so what, what impact did that have on you when you were growing up? Well, um, it, it did impact me in that we never talked about education in my family because my father just recently uh, just arrived in Canada in the, in the late 40s uh, from Vietnam and uh, married my mother, a, a, a Quebecer. And, you know, low-income family. My father was a cook. My mother cleaned office buildings at night. And we had six, there were six kids in the family. So it was just total chaos for, for, for all of my childhood, I would say. So there was never any talk about, you know, going to school or, and not to blame my parents, but never any encouragement, uh, nothing that would, you know, help me realize that, at that young age that I wanted to pursue my education or I wanted to be pursue a certain career. So it was just the economics of the whole thing uh, at that time. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I can relate to that as well. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to um, graduate from university. So um, I, I feel like we have that piece in common. Um, I'm curious about this uh, statement that you made in your guest questionnaire. You said life got in the way. You were working on your PhD in your 30s, and then life got in the way. So what do you mean by that? Well, um, in my early 30s, I, well, I broke up with my boyfriend, the one who had the PhD. And then I started working, and I bought a condo. Um, then I bought a house, and I found myself... Uh, with a huge mortgage, uh, thank God I had a good job, um, and I, I, I just couldn't find the time to pursue a, a doctorate. And at that time, uh, most PhD programs required you to do them uh, to to be a full time student. Uh, 
and I couldn't, um, I couldn't afford to live on what the grants they were giving PhD students at the time, which I, I, I think the grants today are about 30000 plus free tuition. Um, that just wasn't enough to pay all my bills. So, um, And I had such a demanding jobs that I, I couldn't, even if there, there was a, a, a part-time program, at that time I didn't feel equipped that I could do both. So, so I did, um, so I, I just sort of put it on the back burner for a long time. Yeah, you make a really good point. I mean, I think economically, it's it's quite an investment, both in terms of the opportunity cost of no, of not earning an income, and also just the um, you know the the sheer economics of living off of a, a pretty small stipend um, as a PhD student. Um, so I I can totally appreciate how um, the timing on that might not have fit with also paying a mortgage and <laughs> paying for other things in life. Um, so, you know, it, it, the dream never went away though. So you, you went about your life and, and, uh, you had your MBA, but you didn't have the PhD at that point, but then you, um, you, you got into your fifties and you actually decided to return to school. So I'm wondering like, what was the catalyst for that decision? Um, first of all, I just got divorced, um, and, I had been ill with uh, clinically depressed, actually, and I was just coming out of it. And I was I was searching for a purpose, and I remember it to this day. I was uh, sitting in a hotel room in New Orleans on a mini vacation, and I was surfing on the internet. And this advertising for, this advertisement for a DBA at the Basque University popped up on my screen, and I looked into it, and I said to my friend who was there with me, this is what I'm going to do. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm the type of person that I, I, need, to, I need to stay busy. Um, I need to be doing something. Uh, I need to be, I'm very goal-oriented, so I, I need to have goals. And um, this just popped up at the right time in my life, and I was able to do it part-time. Um, and the coursework, the course load was reasonable, and I was very, very fortunate to have my employer uh, pay for it. So I didn't have to, um, to pay for it on my own. So I got a lot of support from my employer at that time. And it turned out uh, just fine. It took me almost six years to complete it. Um, you know, um, and, but I did, in fact, graduate in May 2018. Wow, that's amazing. You know, that that's like a real testimony for the power of online advertising. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked for me. <laughs> and it's it's funny how, you know, we, we can block a lot of things out, but when we're actually looking for something, it just jumps to the foreground. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, wow, that, that's super. Um, I'm curious about this Doctor of Business Administration program at Athabasca University. I'm wondering if you can tell us um, uh, some details about it, uh, such as what courses you took and how the program was structured. Okay, well, the program, um, I, I believe we had to take six to eight courses, but we did it as a cohort. So you had, you know, I think we were 10 or 12 people in our cohort, and we all took the same classes. So we were able to make connections throughout the two or three years we were taking our courses together. And all the courses were online, but every year uh, we would go to Edmonton for a week, 
to meet our professors and have some workshops on the different courses we'd be taking that term, and to meet our, 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 my colleagues in class. So that was really nice. Um, the kinds of courses we had to take were um, you know, management courses, organizational behavior, statistical methods, uh, current, uh, current research, uh, qualitative research methods. So after those six or seven courses, um, you were assigned a supervisor or you, you approached someone to be your supervisor. And then you went off on your own and you, you did your, uh, you do your thesis, which, uh, can take, it took me, um, about three years, three and a half years to do my thesis. So it's a big endeavor, a huge endeavor, uh, but it's well worth it. It was for me, um, uh, because, um, I was able to get actually a, a tenure track position, which is, uh, there are very few of them available in Canada. Um, but I'd been teaching part time in Montreal for, uh, for many years, for over 25 years. And um, so I had a lot of teaching experience under my belt. And I had good, a good, good evaluation, so I think that helped me get the position that I'm in now at uh, Mount St. Vincent University. Yeah, I was so curious about that because I um, am very aware of how difficult it is to get a tenure track position at a university. And so um, I was really interested in, in how you managed to pull that off. And so it seems like a combination of, of having this PhD, but also you had a lot of experience as well. You're exactly right. When I, when I started looking around for uh, tenure track positions, uh, there, at any given time, there are maybe four or five available in Canada. So I saw this position at Mount St. Vincent University, and I said, hmm, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. But I'm lucky, I'd, like as you mentioned, I had 25 years of uh, uh, solid teaching experience, taught almost every accounting course out there except tax and audit, and I had really good teaching evaluations. Um, I was nominated three times for a Distinguished Teacher of the Year Award, and I had excellent, excellent evaluations, and I think that's what got me in the door. So I, they flew me out for an interview. I did the interview, and uh, that was in February, and by late March, early April, I had an offer. And two months later, I packed up everything uh, in Montreal, packed up my dog, and drove to Halifax <laughs> and started a new life here. Wow. <laughs> alone, <laughs> alone, me, me and Harry. Harry's my dog. Oh. <laughs> so we've become best buddies in the last two years. Wow, that sounds amazing. And um, I want to go back a little bit to talk a bit more about uh, your studies at Athabasca. Um, now, you mentioned the cohort model. I love the cohort model because you really get to know people and it, it really helps having that, that level of support. And you also mentioned needing to come to Edmonton from time to time. What were the courses that you did in person versus what were the courses that you did online? What did that look like? Well, the, the courses we did in person were sort of an introduction to the courses we were going to be doing online. So you'd start them face-to-face -face and you continue online. Um, and they were all the courses I just mentioned, statistics, OB, um, management courses. Right. So it, the introduction, or sorry, the in-person was sort of like the overview. Here are the things you're going yes, to be learning. Exactly. 
Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And we, um, the program that I was in had a similar type model. We actually did complete some courses when we were together uh, as a cohort in person. But uh, a- another reason that they said this cohort model and meeting in person works really well is just the bonding that you have with people, like getting to know people a little bit better by meeting them in person. Was that your experience as well? Exactly. Yes. We 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 became quite close. In fact, I still correspond with a few of my uh, classmates. Um, but yes, there was a lot of um, support there. Um, it's amazing how supportive the whole cohort, uh, the, the entire cohort was. Uh, it's an a- amazing experience. I, I wouldn't do um, a PhD uh, online, part-time, without a cohort. Because doing a PhD is a pretty lonely um, endeavor. A lot of hours on your own doing research, and if you don't have the support there from time to time, um, it's easy just to fall into a very dark place and um, and um, and not uh, graduate. Um, I don't know what the stats are, but I did heard you know I heard something like the completion rate for PhD studies is is in the low sixties. Mm-hmm. So there's not a very high success rate when it comes to PhDs PhD studies. Yeah, I can see how it it would be a very lonely journey. You mentioned three years for your thesis, and I I took about the better part of a year to do mine for my master's, and and I thought that was a long haul. So <laughs> I can't I can't even imagine three years. That is a very big commitment. So what was it like? Um, because one of the things um, in working on a thesis, of course, is everybody in a cohort will do a slightly different project. Um, I think it's very rare that any two people are doing exactly the same thing or even close to the same thing. How did that support work with um, with your cohort when when all of you were doing slightly different things? What did that look like? Well, it wasn't, you know, the support was mostly, um, you know, like cheerleading support um, because, of course, as you just said, no one knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, They were doing, often doing their own thing, but it was a really high level of support. Just, you know, go for it. uh, You can do it. um, How's it going uh, at that level? When you get to the thesis level, it, it, it becomes very high level support. Uh, but I got a lot of support from my supervisors and my committee members. That's where you get the um, sort of the detailed support. Yeah. And how did you go about picking a supervisor? I'm curious about that. Well, I wanted to do mine. Uh, my my background is accounting, and so I wanted to do a a thesis on performance management, which is an area in accounting. And um, there was I met one accounting professor uh, there. Um, Fatih Alumi, who just, who was accepted to be my supervisor, and away we went. You know, so I was uh, we were together for three and a half years almost, and uh, it was very good. Nice. And you mentioned your research is in performance management. What what specifically um, was your research question, or what aspect of performance management did you look at? My area is performance management in the higher education sector because I've been working in it for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, I'm looking at um, KPIs, key performance indicators, or any kind of performance data. And um, my question was, to what extent do university leaders use performance data in their everyday activities to inform the decision-making process. Because we all know 
like, you know, right now I'm wearing a Fitbit and it's telling me, also, it's giving me all sorts of performance data on, you know, that's going on in my body. Um, whether I use it or not to improve my, my, my exercise routines or whatever, uh, it's not necessarily going to happen. Just because I receive performance data, I don't necessarily use it to make certain decisions about my personal life. The same thing happens in, in any organization. We, pro we produce tons and tons of performance data. Now, it's, it's only worthwhile if people actually use the data. So there's a disconnect between producing performance data and you know, managers or administrators actually using the data to inform the decision-making process. So I was looking at um, the extent of use and the factors that affect use. And I was specifically looking at um, stakeholder salience as a factor that influenced performance information use. Oh, interesting. Can you say a bit more about stakeholder salience? Because I, I remember studying a stakeholder salience model, but I'm not sure if it was the same model that yeah. you might be referring to. It's probably the same model because it's a classic model. Hmm. So basically, the stakeholder salience model says um, that certain stakeholders are more important than others. Okay. Um, and I was looking at, there are many stakeholders in the higher education sector, faculty, um, donors, students, uh, non-academic staff, funding bodies, many, many stakeholders. Okay. Some are port more important than others. Uh, and I evaluated um, or, or measured um, how salient university leaders felt about certain stakeholder groups. And then I measured if that affected their, their uh, use of performance information. Interesting. And, and what, was, uh, what was your conclusion? That it does. That it it does. does. Yes, it does. Uh, one staker group in particular um, was significant. Um, so the, the um, use of performance information went up because this group was perceived to be more salient. It's, it's, it's the old um, saying, you know, he who has the gold rules. So if your, your stakeholders are important enough, and we see it happening in other organizations where, you know, the dominant stakeholders usually get what they want, you know, within, within certain limits, of course. But uh, that's the, that's the uh, hypothesis I was trying to test. Oh, interesting. And that, that logically makes so much sense. It yep. absolutely does. Um, I'm curious to know, because I, I hear a lot about uh, defending your thesis and how that can be a really nerve-wracking experience. What was it like for you to do your thesis defense? It was totally nerve-wracking. <laughs> you, you, you had to do two defenses, actually. You had to defend your proposal. Mm. Um, that's where you present your research question and um, you lay out how you're going to do the research and then they give you the okay. And then you actually defend, come back three years later, <laughs> and you defend the thesis. But it's very nerve-wracking. Um, and at Athabasca, we had the option of doing it uh, online, like video conferencing, yeah. or actually flying out to Edmonton to present it face-to-face. -face. I chose both times to fly out to Edmonton to do it, to present it, to defend face-to-face. 
just because I, I you know, I didn't want to deal with any potential uh, technology technology glitches, and I just felt it would be better for for me to present to actual people that yeah. I could, you know, see and touch. And I totally am with you on the technology glitches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Circling back a little bit, speaking of technology, um, I did want to ask you a little bit about being an online learner. And obviously, there are huge advantages to being able to do um, an education online and also part-time and being able to work as well. Um, what do you think are you know some of the challenges as an online learner? Did you have any obstacles that you had to overcome in order to be successful in the online environment? I had to learn how to set certain time aside for my studies and to read and to go over the material. So time management, I learned very quickly. Uh, that was probably because I was very mature. Um, so just pri pri you know, setting time aside to actually do the work. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm teaching online now because of COVID. Um, so I think it's a very different experience for someone who goes back to school at the age of 55 or any mature student Who's, who's doing a, you know, a, a graduate degree versus a young undergraduate student who's um, taking online courses. I, I feel as a, a young students need, they need that university experience. So I, I this is my personal opinion, of course, but I, I believe some courses can be done online, but students, young students especially, need to go on campus to to, to, to get that university experience that you can't get online. But I, I've done, you know, I've, I've done, you know, I've done my undergraduate degree. You know, I went to the beer bashes. I was part of the clubs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then I did my CA. I, that happened to my MBA at McGill. Um, you know, I went to, I did a lot of activities there. So by the time the DBA came along, I was ready just to study. Um, I, you know, I didn't need need all that other experience, uh, university experience, because I had had uh, quite a bit of it. So at this point, it, it was kind of easy for me because um, I'd, I'd done all that and I was just ready to learn. Yeah, yeah, you make a really good point. Um, there's sort of the culture of going to a university, um, and especially for young people, embracing all of the extracurricular exactly. activities that come with that. Um, but as a mature student, um, what I found is the same as you, is I, I have many other things that take up um, other pieces of my life. And when it comes to school, I just want to focus on my studies. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think online is better suited for graduate studies. You know, but, you know, it's, of course, it's it should be available to undergrad undergrad students, especially if you can't physically get to a university. Then I'm all for online, but you know, and, and you know, the, the, it's improving. You know, as a result of this Corona uh, virus uh, pandemic that we're going through, I think the quality of online learning is going to improve dramatically, uh, just because we're doing it so much, and um, it can't help. You know, it'll get better as a result. Yeah, what are you seeing as a teacher? Have you found that the tool sets are getting better or just the, our ability to develop content in a way that is um, conducive to online is getting better? Or what specifically are the things that you think are improving? Well, the technology, from my own personal experience, the technology um, is improving. Um, and just uh, creating content and delivering content, that's also improving because I, just at our university and many other universities, we have a team of people that just specialize in online, online learning, and they're, they're there to help 
professors uh, who perhaps have never taught online to deliver their courses um, in a different setting. And it is a different setting. Um, you know, it's not the same being on teaching online and teaching face to face. It's it's not the same at all. How do you think uh, your journey as an online student and online learner played into your role as an online teacher? What was that interplay like? Ah, good question. Um, I think it made me appreciate uh, to a much greater degree um, how online learning could be could be excellent because um, I had an excellent experience at Athabasca. And when I started teaching online for the first time two years ago, um, I learned a lot of lessons from, um, from my experience at Athabasca in terms of technology, uh, delivering content, providing feedback to the students on a regular basis, uh, all of that. I think it really informed the way I teach my online classes today. And um, I have to say, I get pretty good evaluations for my online classes. Mm. I'm also curious to know, having gone through this experience of going back to school, um, in addition to the actual content and the skills that you've learned, were there things that you learned about yourself personally on this back-to-school journey? Good question. Um, I learned, once again, <laughs> that if I put my mind to it, I can, I can do almost anything. I mean, I can't be a, you know, a basketball player, but... You know, anything that's within reasonable reach, if you just apply yourself, um, you could you can succeed. It takes, as you know, five and a half years it took me to get that degree, but I finally ended up getting it, and um, I'm very proud of that. As I'm the first one in my family, as I said, to go to university, let alone, let alone get a doctorate. Um, and for someone who never finished high school, I find it to be quite an accomplishment. Um, I was never able to finish high school, so I always went back. I went back to college as a mature student and then to university and I've, I've reached the sort of the ultimate degree. So, Wow. I, I didn't know that uh, you hadn't uh, completed high school. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I don't, I don't, um, well now I'm announcing it publicly, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's true. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to finish high school. There were some family circumstances at the time that, uh, that didn't allow me to finish high school. So, mm. I think that is amazing that, um, A, that you shared that, and, and B, that you've achieved the highest level of education now. And I just think that's really inspiring. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Well, sometimes I, you know, I tell people, I'm, you know, the, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. <laughs> I think that, that that's what, you know, like I'm still, I'm still kind of, you know, I don't want to say the word insecure. Well, maybe I will, but, you know, I realize how little I know. Um, it's crazy, but, you know, I was joking with my friends that I would maybe do another PhD in education and they just looked at me as if I had three heads. <laughs> I think at, at the age of 62, it's time to stop and <laughs> um, well, enjoy life a bit, you know. <laughs> I do have some guests that have been on the show um, <laughs> who, as a retirement project, are are doing their PhDs. So, um, mm. they're yeah, they started in in their sixties. So, I would say, you know, never say never. And if it's something that you decide later on that you want to take on, um, the options are certainly open for that. Well, yes. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> You never know. You never you, know. You never know. You know, as long as, as, long as you keep learning, um, 
whether it's formal education or informal education, but I think learning is such a big part of, 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 of my life. It's made my life a lot better. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I mean, what would you say was the most surprising thing about this whole journey? That I survived it. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm doing, I'm doing what I love to do. I'm, I just love my job. Best job I ever had, teaching full-time. I love the students. Um, I don't even count how many hours a week I work. Um, I, I work every day. I work every day, and it doesn't, it doesn't, I never complain about it. I just love it. So, that is so inspiring um, to hear you say that. I love that. And it's, 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 my, it's, it's sort of my reward for having uh, worked so hard and, you know, having completed this degree successfully. So I feel as if I'm in, even though I'm working a lot, I feel as if I'm in semi-retirement because I'm doing what I love to do. And I don't feel as if I'm working. That's so nice. Now, what advice would you have for other people? who are midlife and they're contemplating uh, going back to school, what would you say to them? Um, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not sure, um, you know, many universities give you the opportunity to audit a class where you just sit in and you listen. You don't have to actually pay or pay to, pay to take the class. That might be um, uh, one way to get your toes, you know, get your feet wet. Um, another you know, another thing would be just to study um, what you love, something that interests you. Um, I think those two things are probably the best things that you could do. Well, that's wonderful. Before we wrap up here, Jermaine, I just want to ask you, is there anything else that you want to add or that you wish I'd asked you about that you wanted to say? No, I think you've, you've covered it all, Katrina. Uh, thank you for interviewing me. Thank you for letting me tell my story. Um, and I, I appreciate the uh, the time that you've recorded me. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, it's super inspirational. And I'm really glad that uh, you said yes to being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Believing something is possible is the first step towards achieving it. It sounds cliche, but it's true. So many young people take it for granted that they will attend university. To hear Jermaine's story about how that wasn't the case for her or her siblings, it's a reminder that not everyone has access to the same opportunities. Meeting her boyfriend, who had a PhD, and who believed that Germaine could earn one too, that left a lasting impression that her dreams of a PhD were possible. And even though it took a bit longer, that belief was always there in the background. Lastly, isn't it funny how mundane things like online advertising can be so easily ignored until it's for something you're thinking about and then it leaps to the foreground? As a marketer, I love the story of how an online ad connected Jermaine to Athabasca University, tangible proof that advertising can work and that the best marketing is about making valuable connections. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Athabasca University, for generously supporting the show. You can find out more about their many educational offerings at athabascau.ca. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis people. 
Special thanks to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.